So this is Tom Lee, Chief Medical Officer from Press Ganey, and this is the second in our series of interviews with terrific clinicians who have found a door open in their professional lives that gave them even more meaning to their work. This issue of meaning is a very important topic at a time where medicines in turmoil, burnout is rising for all types of clinicians. But many physicians are finding the opposite of burnout. They're finding a new passion and deeper passion for what they do. Uh, today, we're talking with Mike Anglesby, a transplant surgeon at the University of Michigan, one of the leading transplant programs in the country in the areas in which he works. And he's going to tell us about his job, but also how one weekend changed the way he looked at his work and opened up some important new avenues of work. Mike, if you could take it away and give our audience a little bit about your work and that weekend. Great. Uh, thank you, Tom. Uh, so my name is Mike Anglesby. I'm a uh, transplant surgeon at the University of Michigan. I do liver transplants. And part of the job of being a transplant surgeon is that you not only kind of do the operation to put the organ in, but you have to go and get these organs. And uh, it's a good bit of the work, actually, and lots of traveling. So a couple, probably three or four years ago, I had a weekend where I did um, three of these organ donor operations in a row. So go to the other hospital and you take out the organs, you bring them back, get them ready for your partner, and then repeated it two additional times. And it really took a day or a day and a half because uh, with all the travel and all the work. And simultaneously, the kind of the group that organizes this for my region of the United States kind of initiated a new policy where before each donor operation, there was a pause and um, uh, giving of thanks for the gift. And that usually entailed some kind of story or song or prayer. And uh, the first donor for um, of this busy weekend was a young woman uh, who had uh, overdosed on opioids. And the story was about how um, she had had a sports injury in high school and had gotten exposed to opioids. And then that really led her to um, kind of opioid use, misuse, addiction, and eventually overdose and, and organ donation. The second story was almost identical, but the event was around uh, wisdom teeth extraction. Uh, another young woman, very young woman. And the third story was a, a third woman who had been at a high school graduation party and had, for the first time, presumably experimented with opioids and alcohol and had overdosed. I, uh, I was struck because I think the opioid epidemic and it hadn't been really um, discussed in the public, nor really among us professionals. I was struck that uh, this was a really big problem. And though good for the recipients of these organs, it was clear that this was a devastating public health problem. Um, and I became, I think, uh, very interested in trying to see if any of the things I do could be leveraged to try to combat this, at least in my region, the state of Michigan and kind of the Midwest. That practice of taking a pause, I, I, I didn't know that transplant surgeons did this. And it's, what is that like? I mean, how long do you pause? What happens during that pause? And are people actually thinking about the donor or are they thinking, okay, how much longer till we can get going? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I think anyone who's worked in an operating room um, if you made them go through a pause of silence, it would be um, a, re a memorable event because just it's, we just never do it. It's a very fast-moving place, and there's lots of noise in the background. But um, when they do these things, they literally silence everything. I think 
in reality, um, usually you're just thinking about your ne next task at hand. But this was a new kind of uh, a new policy. And I think that's probably why it's sunk in so deeply with me. And then two is, I think among the transplant professionals, there's a deep and sincere gratitude for the gift. Everyone takes it very seriously, kind of the story behind these donors. And it's just, an, uh, there's a lot of young learners, trainees um, who are part of this. And I think it's important kind of as a kind of more senior person that you uh, pay homage to that and set the cultural tone appropriately. So I think I've Many of us take it very seriously, kind of for that reason. That having been said, just the the going through twenty minutes of silence was so. I mean, twenty seconds of silence in the operating room made it a very kind of uh, shocking and impactful experience to kind of go through. So you were actually empathizing with patients who were close to death, about to about to pass away, and the sequence of, you know, bang, 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 three cases that had the same theme to them, not gunshot wounds, but opioid-related deaths, made a big impression on you. So then what happened? You know, I know you went deeper into the issue, but can you tell our audience how you did and what you learned? Yeah. Uh, so I, um, one of my other jobs that I do, I, I have the opportunity to kind of change practices across my state among surgeons, but I didn't know where to start. So there's kind of two individuals that I was friends with, and I kind of had always been looking for an, uh, an excuse to work with them. One's a guy named Chad Brumman. He's a pain doc, anesthesiologist, and the other uh, person's a woman named Jen Walgy. She's a plastic surgeon. And uh, so I went to them, and, I'm, and I kind of told them my story and expressed interest in kind of getting involved in some, I guess, research around the opioid epidemic. And they were all in, and it really blossomed a great Kind of collaboration. All three of us bring different skills to the table. We started trying to understand kind of the complex patients who come to surgery who are on chronic opioids, who have kind of pain syndrome, chronic pain syndrome. And it was really hard. We, we essentially failed for the first six months to a year. There, uh, the degree of complexity was beyond the scope of our expertise as surgeons. And we just kind of, uh, um, kind of floundered, to be frank. But then Chad had an idea that um, he basically said, no one starts as a chronic opioid user. No one starts as a heroin user. You start with an exposure to opioids. Almost all of those exposures are from some prescription that a doctor gives you, a dentist, a surgeon, an emergency room doctor. Something happens and you um, are given uh, opioids. And we started to focus on uh, what Chad likes to call keeping healthy people healthy and preventing new kind of chronic opioid use, abuse, and addiction. And that was a very par powerful moment for us where... It became clear that as surgeons or dentists, we kind of are the gatekeepers of opioid exposure for the majority of Americans. That's where people get their first exposure to opioids. And for those for, uh, vulnerable patients, that first exposure can be life-changing. So we really started focusing on trying to prevent new chronic use after surgery. And that has been what we've been focusing on over the past two or three years. So... I you know, if you could, uh, you know, summarize like what you found about, you know, prescribing practices for patients having lap coles. I was so struck by that when you and I first met. Uh, yeah, of course. So um, a couple sound bites of our work, we figured out that depending on the operation, a remarkable number of patients become kind of new chronic opioid users after successful surgery. So we like to say that probably the most common surgical complication in the United States is taking an opioid naive patient and leaving them as a chronic opioid user. Um, and that number is upwards of about 6%. So of the, you know, 
you know, millions of operations done every year, you can kind of see that number adds up quickly where people have common operation like a lap coli. They give pills. They're given pills. They take them for a couple of days. They stop taking them. They frequently feel very lousy once they stop taking them and they continue taking them. They get a refill, so forth. They're kind of off to the races with chronic opioid use and then potentially um, even worse problems around addiction. Uh, so we investigated kind of the, the simplest operation we do here at the University of Michigan to try to understand that pathway. And, and I'll, I think one theme here is young people. So, you know, we have a lot of young learners. A lot of these patients that impacted us are young, vulnerable people. And a lot of the ideas that we've leveraged um, have been kind of young, bright, you know, students and, and surgical residents, anesthesia residents. And one of the medical students kind of... Uh, we, we, we showed some data showing that patients take six pills after a, having their gallbladder removed, but we write for 45 pills. Why is there such a disconnect? And he, he really dug in on that. He said that's, you know, I think he, he got very motivated to try to understand that practice and that process, and he just didn't make any sense to him. And he's a you know, fourth-year medical student where he was months away from having to write these opioid prescriptions himself. So basically what he did is he, he called everyone who we had taken their gallbladder out and uh, asked them, you know, how many pills were you given? How many pills did you take? How's your pain care? And then he basically came to our department and he said, you're giving 45 pills. Why don't you just give 15? And th these are the data. And it changed immediately. I think we all quickly understood the problem. And since that time, over the past two years, no patient after lap coli has gotten more than 15 pills. It's been a, a remarkable impact on how we prescribe for all of the uh, surgeries we do. And I think the important point is that those extra 30 pills we're not writing for, those are the pills in our communities. Those are the pills that people, our young people and vulnerable populations are have access to that can really kind of drive or introduce opioid addiction. So it's absolutely critical to kind of right-size prescribing. And we've continued to drive on it further, and we've kind of come to a, a point where actually the majority of patients who have their gallbladder removed at our institution don't need any opioids and they don't take any um, and they have even better pain care. So we've just gotten much more attentive about kind of taking best care of patients. And now, you know, we're writing for 10, 20% uh, opioids we used to at our institution um, and it's, and patients are getting, I think, much better care. Now, Mike, you know, one reason I like your story is that, you know, you're taking care, you're doing patient care and you had this experience and you developed you know, a little bit of an obsession. You went with it and you worked to improve the care of your own institution. Uh, but then there's another phase where you, now you're trying to improve the care of your state. So can you tell a little bit about what you're doing in, at the state level to try to improve opioid prescribing? Uh, yeah, um, for sure. So, you know, I work at the University of Michigan. We feel uh, a deep um, kind of commitment to serving the, the 10 million people in the state of Michigan. And we're a good hospital. We have a lot of resources. We understand care pretty well. And when we have uh, something that we think we can, uh, could benefit the rest of the state, um, we have a lot of resources from Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Michigan, our own institution, to try to drive care improvements across our state. And healthcare can be a competitive place, but I think um, some visionary leadership within our state has made it clear that um, the delivery of care really is uh, goes beyond that, and it's about essentially patients and families, and and that's kind of the the community that we have across the state, and we leverage that to change care. So what we've done is for kind of major operations across specialties, we have data coming in from 
all of the hospitals that do surgery in the state of Michigan. And we get to, and we understand now how many pills are given, how many pills are taken by patients. And we have specific recommendations for, so for example, have, when you have your gallbladder removed, how many pills a doctor should give you. So we have essentially statewide guidelines. But taking it even further, partnering with Michigan Department of Health and Human Services, which is our Medicaid provider, and then Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Michigan, we can align kind of best practices, but more importantly, incentives. So a hospital or physician incentives around this best practice around pain care. And not that, you know, incentives don't work to change practice. If doctors don't, it just doesn't work. You know, if you pay me more money, it's really not going to change my practice. You really has to come from what, what, you know, what's best for the patients. But what incentives do is they bring people to the table and they uh, get everyone on the same page around best practice processes at the kind of the, at the administrative level. And we've had a lot of success incentivizing best pain care um, across our state, across all of the institutions for all the providers. Um, and we're very excited um, that we've really changed the way opioid prescribing happens, at least on the surgical event in the state of Michigan. And we continue to expand that work into dental care and acute care around emergency medicine. C- certainly, uh, Michigan's a safer place. And I think um, the punchline is that uh, I, I am confident that I won't have to do three organ donations in my state from beautiful young people again because of the good work around uh, that we're doing across uh, across the state on opioid prescribing. Well, you know, the collaboration across Michigan is like another story and a great story in itself. And you're in a special state. But let me close by saying, you know, Mike, you're you're a surgeon. I mean, you're a busy guy. You were trained to do something fantastic and really complicated, you know, organ transplant, liver transplant, you're, and you're also doing research on portal hypertension. And isn't this a little bit of a waste of your time to be doing something else that's really complicated, which is changing behavior of, you know, all of us on a, on a broad scale? Why are you doing it? You don't have to do this. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I think, you know, all of us, we see, we seek um, impact, we seek meaning, we seek purpose. For me, I, I, I get a lot of my energy around, um, I think, two things. One is the, the, the people I work with, the, my friends, Chad and Jen, are just people that I get a lot of energy working with them. And then seeing all these young folks, these students and residents really take these ideas and just kind of explode them across uh, the country. It's just so fulfilling. I think that's one thing, too, is I feel a very strong obligation with all the opportunities that I have to serve the good people in the state of Michigan. And this was just an opportunity where you kind of felt like, you know what, I think we can do some good here. Certainly it takes a toll on some of the other aspects of your life, but you know, we're all trying to balance those things out. Taking care of one patient at a time is not enough for any doctor. You always have to be um, thinking about how your patient got to where they are and what you can do to try to prevent, either improve on the care of the next patient or try to prevent patients from having similar problems. And I think that's kind of a, a culture of a, a great institution and certainly the way I was raised. So when you have an opportunity to, to kind of live in that uh, space and act on it, certainly it's been uh, been very exciting. Well, you know, I, I've just recently written an article on grit and healthcare with Angela Duckworth, the Penn psychologist, who's the big expert on grit. And in her framework, you need passion and you need perseverance. And, you know, physicians come to medicine with passion and uh, keeping that passion alive and sustaining it, cultivating it so that people can persevere 
over years and decades. That's one of the reasons why we're doing this series. But I think your story about how you have enlarged the focus of what you feel passionate about without losing the passion for your core activity, doing liver transplants and kidney transplants is a great one, a good example. Uh, so thanks so much for stepping away from all those activities for a bit and sharing these experiences with our audience today. Yeah, honor, pleasure.